Hello, and welcome to episode 25 of Thaisi Books, news interviews about Thaisi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Bart. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, we have Dr. Renuka Singh in the Thaisi Craft Chat segment. She'll be discussing a book she's recently edited of quotations from the Dalai Lama, The Little Book of Encouragement. We also have Shokat Ajmeri reading from his debut novel, Keepers of the Faith, in the Desi Reads segment. Please sit back and enjoy. Notable New Books for April. You can find all the titles mentioned in this new book segment at bookshop.org, which benefits local independent booksellers directly. Go to bookshop.org slash lists slash daisy dash books dash 2021. There's also a new UK-based list at uk.bookshop.org slash lists slash daisy dash books dash UK dash 2021. My apologies to non-US and non-UK listeners, but I do always mention notable Daisy books from other parts of the world on these episodes as well. I just don't have a bookshop list for them yet. I know I don't always catch all new books by writers of South Asian origin, so if you've got a new book coming out, please tag the Daisy Books account on Twitter or Instagram to let me know. You can also send an email to hellodaisybooks at gmail.com. The social media links will always be in the transcripts of the episodes, and they're always on the website. First, here are some notable books that I missed in last month's roundup. First, Witnesses of Remembrance, Selected Newer Poems. These are by Kuwar Narayan, translated by Apurva Narayan. It's the first book-length translation of the author's poetry to appear after his passing away in 2017. It has an eclectic, wide-ranging selection of poems from his latest five collections. This bilingual edition is also substantive, with over a hundred poems translated and introduced by Apurva Narayan, who has spent years with his father's poems. Next, I Want a Poem and Other Poems by Jerry Pinto. This is his second collection. Pinto is a writer of fiction and nonfiction and a literary translator. These poems are playful, profound, and wise, and they're wide-ranging in theme and mood. The Demoness, Best Bangladeshi Stories, edited by Niaz Zaman. Published to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Bangladesh's independence, these 27 stories feature the finest short fiction from the nation. Since before it achieved independence in 1971 to the present day, and it includes all the great writers of Bangladesh. Now for a few uh, new notable books that are out in the first half of April. Gold Diggers by Sanjana Sathyan is a debut novel. It's a magical 
realist coming-of-age story focused on second-generation Indian Americans. It's about they see immigrant culture in the U.S., ambition, the model minority myth, and more. And she'll be on the podcast soon talking about it in the Desi Craft Chat segment. Radicalizing Her, Why Women Choose Violence by Nimi Gorinathan. Gorinathan, whose own family history is intertwined with resistance, spent nearly 20 years in conversation with female fighters in Sri Lanka, Eritrea, Pakistan, and Colombia. Women make up nearly 30% of militant movements worldwide. And these narratives help us see their complex position in contemporary political discourse about gender, power, and violence. Many Mahabharatas, edited by Neil Shapiro Hawley and Sohini Sarah Pillai, it's, this is an introduction to the spectacular and long-lived diversity of Mahabharata literature in South Asia. From the 1st to the 21st century, these Mahabharatas have been told or retold in at least nine languages. And beyond the Sanskrit versions, the book looks at classical dramas, pre-modern vernacular poems, regional performance traditions, commentaries, graphic novels, political essays, novels, and contemporary theater productions. Next, we have Fragile Monsters, a debut novel by C.G. Menon. It traces one family's story from 1920 to the present, uh, and it's a story about love, betrayal, and redemption against the backdrop of natural disasters and fallen empires. With a daughter-grandmother relationship at its heart, the book explores what happens when secrets fester through the generations. The Khan by Saima Mir. This one sounds like a fascinating crime thriller. It's a debut and it features organized crime in the Pakistani-British community uh, with a female protagonist. It looks at cultural stereotypes, sacred cows, and the attitudes and morality of a community within which the story is based. How to Fail as a Pop Star by Vivek Shreya is her debut theatrical work, a one-person show that spans her journey from singing in shopping malls to not quite pop music stardom, or superstardom, I should say. It explores the power of pop culture, dreams, disappointments, and self-determination. The book also includes color photographs from the show's 2020 production in Toronto and a foreword by its director, Brendan Healy. How to Raise a Feminist Son, Motherhood, Masculinity, and the Making of My Family by Sonora Jha is informed by her work as a professor of journalism specializing in social justice movements and social media, as well as by conversations with psychologists, experts, other parents and boys, and through powerful stories of her own life. It shows us how to be better feminists and better teachers of the next generation 
of men. In the Desi Craft Chat segment today, we've got Dr. Rainika Singh. She is a former professor and sociologist from the Center for the Study of Social Systems at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. She's been working in the field of gender studies, diaspora, and Buddhist studies for over four decades. She's been associated with the Women's Studies Center, Delhi University, Center for Social Research, and she was a research fellow at the Center for Cross-Cultural Research on Women at Oxford University, UK. She was also a senior UGC fellow and is currently the director of Tushita Mahayan Meditation Center, New Delhi. She's edited some previous collections um, by the Dalai Lama as well, and several other publications too. Not that most people need an introduction to the Dalai Lama, but here goes. Tenzin Gyatso, His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet, is the spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhists and a Nobel laureate. In 1950, at the age of 15, he was called upon to assume full responsibility as head of state and government. His efforts to bring about a peaceful solution to the Sino-Tibetan problem were thwarted and, following the suppression of the March 1959 Tibetan National Uprising, he escaped to India, where he was given political asylum. In exile, he continues to lead his people in the education, rehabilitation, and preservation of the ancient and unique Tibetan culture. He is recognized as an advocate of world peace and interreligious understanding. And he has written several books on Buddhism, philosophy, human nature, and universal responsibility, and received many international awards. This latest collection of quotations, The Little Book of Encouragement, focuses, as with all of the Dalai Lama's works, on our interdependency, the oneness of humanity, the need to look within ourselves to cultivate a value system that acknowledges others' rights and interests, and more. Particularly, it is intended to bring us hope and encouragement during these pandemic times. I talked with Dr. Singh about the process with this book and more, so have a listen. Thank you for joining me here on Desi Books Podcast to talk mm -hmm. about the little book of encouragement. Um, let's start with You've written mm -hmm. other books uh, with the Dalai Lama's teachings as well, right? I was looking at some of the other ones you've written. So could you tell yes. us a bit first about your longer-term association with him and a bit about the previous books? Okay. Uh, well, uh, my association with him uh, goes... Uh, to the 80s, early 80s, when I was a doctoral student at JNU. And uh, I had a lot of questions about the nature of mind. 
um, which made me go through a lot of uh, philosophical texts and uh, Tibetan Buddhist texts. And um, so it was in that connection, I got to uh, take my first teaching with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in 1986. And uh, that is where I asked him my uh, question. And he took about half an hour in answering my question. And uh, I mean, I was, my God, really taken aback. And I thought, here is someone from whom I can learn something. Um, and after the teachings got over, I got a private audience with His Holiness. And uh, we spent about 40 minutes with each other. Uh, and I asked the rest of my questions. And after I uh, stepped out, um, you wouldn't believe I didn't have any question left. I was transported to a different state of consciousness. And that's when I tasted, uh, I would say, you know, the, the spiritual realm. Um, and as Holiness said, that no amount of reading will help. You have to start meditating. So since then, I have been at it. Uh, that was the beginning of my relationship. And over these years, it has really deepened and deepened. And I think the heights or the depth, I think there is no end to it. Hmm. Well, that, that's and, lovely. Yeah, that's. And uh, then coming uh, down to the books that I did with His Holiness, uh, it was in 1998. Uh, that I did my first book with His Holiness. This was also a book of quotations for each day of the year. It was called The Path to Tranquility, which was, you know, republished in 2019 by Penguin. It was called Daily Inspiration. So that book really, uh, I think, uh, brought about um, a change in the world. I mean, it was translated into all the world languages and uh, it was on the bestsellers list. And uh, so that was very encouraging, I thought, because I tried to present as holiness from my point of view and encapsulated his wisdom and knowledge uh, in those quotations. And even in this book, I think I have tried to do that, but for a secular audience. And especially uh, during the Corona times, as you know, mm. people have been going through a lot of uncertainty, anxiety, depression, mm. you name it. Uh, so here is a book, uh, I think that will help uh, and benefit people in uh, remaining uh, in high spirits. Mm -hmm. So yes. Courage, yeah. Right, right. And so let's come to this book. So this uh, book uh, is a collection, as you said, of sayings and quotes from speeches and talks by the Dalai Lama. How mm -hmm. did you go about collecting them and deciding which ones to include in the book? You know, what was your process like? Mm. Well, um, I went through all his teachings uh, given in 2019 and 2020. And I went uh, through these teachings over and over again. And each time I would read them, uh, I would, you know, mark certain 
paragraphs or the portion that I used to like, or that would, you know, grip my psyche. And uh, so it is like, you know, a distillation process. So eventually, after four or five readings, then you can uh, narrow it down and focus on the quotes that you would like to include. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a process, that's how it happens. Mm -hmm. And then you try to put it together in a kind of a narrative form or give it some kind of a structure so that it reads well. Mm -hmm. So that's how it happens. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as I was reading this, to your point, you know, the, the structure, you know, I, I was going through and I felt certain sayings, I felt, okay, you know, this feels a little bit like common wisdom. But some of them I had to reread a couple of times or, you know, just sit with for a while and come back to it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so I can see kind of what you're saying, that there is a, a process there. What was your experience then as you were compiling? Did you... Did any of the, you know, did some of these have like a special uh, resonance for you? And if so, you know, could you maybe tell us about a couple of those? Uh, well, uh, I would say that uh, His Holiness, uh, His Holiness's advice regarding uh, how to face uh, these uncertain times really resonated with me. And I agree with him completely. Uh, you really need to have your inner courage. Uh, besides, you know, the external work which is being done in the medical field uh, by the frontliners uh, to cope with the situation. But basically, I think you have to build your inner strength to counter any external kind of a crisis. Mm -hmm. So that really resonated uh, with me. Mm -hmm. and, and so is, is there, uh, it, it, do you happen to have the book in front of you? Would you mind reading out maybe a couple that are special? Yes, yeah. yes sure. So here I go. Mm -hmm. Scientists have evidence to prove that basic human nature is compassionate. They have also found the opposite that constant anger and hatred weaken our immune system. Therefore, just as we teach people physical hygiene to help preserve their physical health for a happy and peaceful mind, we need to teach people about emotional hygiene, how to tackle their destructive emotions. And here is another one. As a Buddhist, I believe in the principle of impermanence. Eventually, this virus will pass, just as I have seen wars and other terrible threats pass in my lifetime. We will then have the opportunity to rebuild a global community as we have done many times before. I sincerely hope that everyone can stay safe and stay calm. At this time of uncertainty, it is important that we do not lose hope and confidence in the constructive efforts so many are making. Thank you, yeah. Thank you, yeah. Yeah, that second one certainly yeah, resonates. Yes, we will have to rebuild and who knows mm -hmm. how that rebuilding, how long it will take and how it will mm -hmm. take shape. So mm -hmm. 
Um, and uh, here is the, yeah. the, the last one also, which I think the whole world uh, actually needs to uh, pay heed to. Can I go through it too? Sure, please do. In this time of serious crisis, we face threats to our health and feel sadness for the family and friends we have lost. Economic disruption is posing a major challenge to governments and undermining the ability of so many people to make a living. The crisis and its consequences serve as a warning. Only by coming together in a coordinated global response will we meet the unprecedented magnitude of the challenges we face. I pray we all heed the call to unite. Thank you. Thank you. So what would be a good way for a reader to approach this collection? Do, would you recommend they can just dip in and out as they need, read it all the way through, meditate on one saying or quote a day? What's a good way to approach it? Mm, I think I will leave it to the readers mm. to discover the book for themselves, mm. how it unfolds uh, within themselves. Um, if they want to pick and choose, they can do that or they can go through it uh, one at a time, you know, whatever they like. Mm -hmm. Depends on their own uh, capacity, mood, inclination, <laughs> predilection. Right, right, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Fair you, enough. Can't have, you can't have a formula, you know, for reading right. a book. Right, yeah. no, of course not, yeah. But it, it just because of, I, I don't know, because of the, the, the structure of the book, it's kind of, uh, it's not exactly like a novel or you know, no. short story collection. So that's uh, hence my question. Um, let me ask you, you know, um, I, I remember actually I was in Dharamshala in uh, mm -hmm. September 2015. And I remember, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the Dalai Lama had just come back home for the winter. And there mm -hmm. was a big talk at the main temple. I think he does that every time he comes back. And yes. I remember there wasn't even standing room. Every single room of the temple was packed mm. and there were like TV screens everywhere. There was a live feed of him. People had traveled, mm -hmm. you know, from Delhi or even further just to mm -hmm. see him in person. Mm -hmm. And so why do you think that even in today's world, there is such a clamor for his words and his presence? What is it? Well, uh, to put it in one line, you know, he is an enlightened being. And he has uh, a very, very powerful presence. And it is his compassion that touches people. And especially in a world where people are, I think, uh, a bit disenchanted. So I see it as a re-enchanting process that is going on. Mm. And people feel inspired by him, his simplicity, his honesty, you know, his scholarship uh, and his freshness, his laughter, his, he's very childlike. Mm. So all these qualities put together, I think they really have an impact on people. And that's why the whole world is trying to reach out to him today. Yeah, one thing I, I also remember his curiosity. I remember mm. when, you know, people were going up to talk to him or, or just, you know, meet him right after. Um, and he wasn't able to spend much time with everybody. Of mm. course, there were so many waiting in mm. line, but he took the time 
especially with you know the younger children you know to mm -hmm. you know just talk to them and you could tell from his face the expression i was standing in line like further back and he certainly okay. had that you know it was a genuine curiosity to say okay how is how how are things with you you know i, I yeah. just sense that from him so yeah he is so humane mm. and uh, and he touches your heart mm. that's what he does mm. now and, now transports you to a different level altogether right right yeah right now now you're a former as you said i think earlier you're a former jnu professor you're currently mm -hmm. the director of the uh the, the meditation center in delhi yes kushita uh, so mahayana meditation center kushita mahayana and and so tell us a bit about your own approach you know to spirituality and how it's been a part of your personal and professional life Hmm. Well, uh, you know, I got associated with uh, this center in 1987, and I have been uh, helping them out since 1988, but I became the director of the center in 1993. So um, I have been... Uh, so to say serving my uh, spiritual gurus in this manner by offering my services so that people in india especially in delhi will benefit from this uh, culture of wisdom the tibetan uh, buddhist uh, wisdom culture the two lamas who established the center Uh, our late Lama Yeshi and our current spiritual director, Venerable Lama Zopa Rinpoche. So uh, Lama Yeshi always wanted to thank the Indians for uh, supporting the Tibetans in India. And they have always seen India as the Arya Bhumi, you know, land of the gurus. Mm -hmm. So Lama Yeshi felt that this was the only way to repay the kindness of indians mm. by offering the center to the delhiites the city people who are going through uh, i should say a very chaotic uh, time <laughs> yes so it gives them some kind of sanity they come there listen to the teachings and meditate regularly um it's like uh, you know you're taking out so much time to uh, look after your body every day but you barely take out some time for your own mind mm, yeah so this is what the center provides and for me personally uh, i think um, the study and the practice in terms of meditation has uh, really helped me in my own um, struggle uh, my spiritual struggle and i think it uh, affected my scholarly work as well in the sense that i actually did uh, an empirical study on the urban women and that exploration uh, of their own spirituality that book was called women reborn it was also published by penguin in 1997 yes so I, i i did go and look at that book for because i was i was curious yes i looked at that one but, but yeah please yeah. go ahead and tell us about that yeah so that's how it impacted you know my uh, academic life too 
So I must say that uh, at that time, people were a bit critical about it because they said, oh, in social sciences, you have to use the category of religion and not spirituality. Right. They used to say that, oh, that is just a nominal reality that you're talking about. And, um, but they didn't realize that uh, I was, uh, you know, forcing a certain trend in the social sciences. And now everybody's talking about spirituality everywhere. Right, and, and I mean, for you at that time, it wasn't not just, you know, breaking ground by talking about spirituality, but you were mm. interrogating or investigating and exploring women and their yes. relationship to spirituality, which is not, again, at that time was not something that was being done, mm -hmm. at least not in India, right? So. Yeah, because, you know, it is often said that, oh, men can achieve enlightenment and not mm. women. Right. Uh, our philosophical texts, that's what they mention. Mm -hmm. And being, uh, you know, very close to the feminist thinking, and I questioned that whole paradigm. Yeah. I said, no, uh, the very fact that women go through their daily toil and um, struggle, uh, they actually, you know, have all through their relationships, they are exploring their own spiritual world. Yeah. They have a different paradigm altogether. So there's a feminine model of spirituality in the secular context and a masculine model. It's I not that, that they cannot follow each other. huh? Right, right. No, I love that. I said what you just said. Yeah. I mean, that's great. So uh, you need to strike a balance. And I think um, men need to learn from women and women need to learn from men in terms of their uh, this path. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I only discovered that book that you wrote, uh, the, the Women in Spirituality one, because of this podcast. I was doing some research on you and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I ordered mm -hmm. the book because I, I want to read that one now. So um, yes. that, that was- And funny. I tell you, there is a very, very uh, wonderful interview of His Holiness in that book. Mm. Okay. I have one chapter on men, mm -hmm. uh, the scientist and the saint, mm. okay? And I interviewed His Holiness for it. So please go through it. I will. I look forward to it. Um, yeah. Thank you. So what's next book-wise for you, Renika? What Are you working on another book or are you planning? Well, on actually, you know, uh, we people, we have a habit of uh, thinking about several books at the same time in our mind, mm. right? Mm -hmm. But when it comes to delivering the baby, only one book comes out at a time. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, uh, I have to uh, compile a few teachings uh, by His Holiness that I have organized in Delhi. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to put that book together, too, yeah. along with another study uh, that I've been working on for a long time on uh, international marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, cross-cultural marriages mm -hmm. because there is uh, not a single uh, book that uh, or study that has been done in India yet uh, on international marriage where you know one spouse is an Indian and the other a foreigner mm -hmm. or a non-native so to speak right. you have a lot of books on this inter-regional inter-religious marriages within India mm -hmm. but an Indian married to a foreigner no a few articles are there but not a proper study so that's what I'm working on. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that's going to be a fascinating study. So I look forward to that. Um, 
Let me, my last question then is, and I ask this of every guest who comes on, and that mm -hmm. is, what is your favorite book by a Desi writer and why? The favorite book by a Desi writer? Yeah, so basically when I say use the word Desi, I mean writer with, of South Asian origin. They don't have to be in India, they could be anywhere, but they are of South Asian origin. My Lord. <laughs> uh, well, I think uh, there are many books that I've enjoyed, but my favorite, can I put a finger on that? I have my doubts. Well, even if it's the most recent one that you enjoyed, maybe maybe go with that. A lot of people kind of go, it's recency bias, right? They'll, they don't remember their favorite of all time, but then they'll say, well, recently I read this and really enjoyed it. So that's good. That's good too whatever your last read was that you enjoyed? Oh, I have read so much stuff <laughs> of late. I'm a bit confused about it now. Well, because yeah, we're all reading more nowadays too, right? Because we're staying at home more. I know, so. I know, I know, yeah. Mm. Um, well, I uh, enjoyed uh, Several authors, I can put it like that, probably. Okay, how about that? Sure, yes. Yeah. I enjoyed reading Amitabh Ghosh. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the Deviani, that Devaki. She's the, she writes, well, she translated. Mistress, Mistress of Spices, remember? Ah, oh, Devakaruni, yes, yes. Devakaruni, yeah. Ah, yes. oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, yeah, her books, she's got a new book out right now. Um, yeah, I haven't uh, read that yet. Right, yeah, mm -hmm. I haven't read that, but uh, but it's uh, with my my publisher, HarperCollins, and uh, it's doing really well because it's a true life story of uh, Rani Jinda Kaur, you know, mm -hmm. the last uh the, the yes. last queen of uh, ranjit singh so yes. yeah maharaja ranjit singh so that's gonna be interesting mm -hmm. i'm sure there will be a movie or a tv series on it soon <laughs> so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay but amitav ghosh is you know here's something interesting amitav ghosh is probably mm -hmm. the most mentioned writer in response to this question on this podcast which well i can understand that because don't forget He's uh, not uh, merely a novelist. He is trained in social sciences. Yes. He's an anthropologist. He is, and he does a lot for climate change. I mean, he, he speaks out he a lot. He does a lot of research it. before he writes a book. Yes. And how many Indian authors do that? Correct. Very true. Very true. Yes. And I can see why you would be drawn to somebody like that, because you've also got your scholarly roots. And yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Because Eventually, you see, you want a little bit of depth in the novel too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is the Desi books, but I mean, internationally, if you want to ask me mm -hmm. my favorite book, mm -hmm. I mean, I used to love this book, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, my gosh. What a that has been one of my favorite books. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I mean that book has it all, really. I, yeah. I I'm, I'm, I've always been more of a Tolstoy reader, but, but Dostoevsky, I think Crime and Punishment. I mean, it's a must read for sure. And yeah. you know, I, I read it. Yeah, I've enjoyed Tolstoy too. Yeah, yeah. 
And I wow. can never forget where Tolstoy says, all are responsible for all. That statement is so profound. Yeah. 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 He was quite a spiritual guy himself. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You see, you can live in the material world and yet develop your spirituality. True. So you can transcend, uh, you know, these dichotomies. I don't know why people like to see it as polar opposites. Right, right. Well, so and it is yes, the preeminence yeah. and eminence of the transcendent yeah. in His Holiness's work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. This has been such a great conversation, Renika. I'm, I'm really thrilled because, you know, oftentimes when I have a guest on, we never know where because we're just having a conversation and then suddenly we kind of, hit something and you know suddenly there's a resonance and I kind of felt that during our conversation so I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing you know your work with us with with the listeners and also sharing your thoughts and and um, on spirituality and the other books that you've mentioned I look forward to working and reading your upcoming next one as well so thank you again thank you thank you very much Jenny for having me In today's Daisy Reed segment, we have Shokath Ajmeri. Shokath was born and educated in India. He worked as a journalist before settling down in Canada and has recently started on a literary career. He is currently writing a collection of short stories and a second novel. Keepers of the Faith, Ajmeri's debut novel, is set among the members of a small Muslim sect in India ruled by an oppressive priesthood that demands absolute submission. When a section of the community rebels, the head priest's wrath comes crashing down upon them and a peaceful community is split into two. The novel follows the fates of two teenage lovers who find themselves on opposite sides of the schism. Their dreams of a happy life together is shattered and they are forced into separate destinies. Years later, their paths cross again, presenting them with soul-destroying choices. This is the story of a people caught in the grip of blind faith and the terrible price they must pay for standing up for their dignity. Here he is now. Hello, my name is Shaukat Ajmeri. I'm going to read from my novel, Keepers of the Faith. As they walked home, Akbar spotted her walking towards them with a mother and little sister. She was wearing a printed pinafore, her two side braids tied with red ribbons. He nervously adjusted his hair. Hope I don't look like a buffoon. He was ready with a smile in case their eyes met. But when she passed him, she was looking straight ahead, ignoring him on purpose. The taste of tang in his mouth had suddenly turned sour. He swallowed. Her indifference felt like a stab, like what he had felt on their last encounter, which was on Eid Day, two months before. His father had got him fitted with a new suit for the occasion, and he had felt like a prince, though also terribly self-conscious. After the morning prayers at the mosque, and having had their Eid treat of Shir Kurma, the men and children of the house were ready to set off to visit relatives and friends. 
The kids would receive gifts of cash and were eager with anticipation. Akbar asked if they would call on Zubair the auntie. Seeing Ruksana would be the best Eid gift he could imagine. His father said no, because they must visit relatives first. And there were so many of them. There was not enough time for Zubair the auntie. Akbar was disappointed. But then he had an idea. Why not go and visit Zubair the auntie on his own first, before he left with his father? He thought up an excuse. Amma, Zubair the auntie was asking me about my Eid clothes. What about them? His mother asked. Nothing, just that she wanted to see what I was wearing for Eid. Mm, can I go and show off my suit to her? I'll also get Eid. All right, be quick about it, Khatun muttered, not entirely convinced. Akbar was out of sight in a flash before she could change her mind. He walked the short distance to Zubaydah's house in quick steps, trussed up in his tailored suit, his new black leather shoes biting his ankles. By the time he was climbing the stairs to the first floor home, his throat was dry and his starched white collar soaked in sweat. This is not a good idea. His ruse had been so dumb, he wondered how Amma had swallowed it. What would Zubaydah auntie think? He had not yet thought of an explanation. Whatever he said would surely sound foolish. It was not too late to turn back, but the urge to see Ruksana demolished all other concerns. Especially today, on Eid day, she would be looking her best. He went in. Visitors were greeting each other in various stages of arriving and departing, all of them in new clothes, bright and crisp and pressed. Quietly, he slid into a chair by the door, his eyes searching for Ruksana. Zubad auntie soon noticed him. She was sitting at one end of the diwan, resting her back against a cushion. Ruksana was nowhere in sight. Akbar, when did you come? He could only manage a smile. Has your mother sent you for something? Yes, but he could not for the life of him think of what to say. What is it? She said, Salam, Eid Mubarak, he blurted out, looking away from her. Oh, Eid Mubarak, she looked puzzled. Will you have something to eat? No, thank you. Come on, don't be shy. Try my sheer kurma, it's better than your mother's, she said with a chuckle. Akbar smiled, relieved that she did not pursue the cross-examination. She called out to Ruksana to bring the sheer kurma. His heart thrummed on hearing her name. He waited, letting his eyes wander around the room. It was rather sparsely furnished, a flowery fabric sofa next to the diwan and three wooden chairs with padded cushions on the opposite side. Framed photos of two relatives, Ruxana's grandparents, he assumed, on the wall seemed to stare at him with suspicion. He looked away. Just then, Ruxana entered, carrying a bowl on a tray. She looked lovely in a knee-length dress, her loose hair secured at the temples with butterfly hairpins, talcum powder on the face, eyes smoky with kajal, a dagger-like mark of coal elegantly extended at the corners of her eyes. He broke into a smile. Their eyes met and she favored him one in return a faint parting of the lips. He looked for a hint of pleasure, a hesitant, self-conscious shyness that his presence might have evoked, but he found none. Give it to Akbar, Zubeda said. He's looking dashing in his suit, don't you think? Embarrassed, feeling all eyes in the room upon him, he shifted in his chair. Eid Mubarak, he said in a barely audible voice. Eid Mubarak, she replied, put the tray on the side table and went and sat down next to her mother. He ate quietly, trying not to slurp, as his mother had taught him, and threw sidelong glances at her when she was not looking. She caught him a couple of times, eyeing her. He detected a smirk on her face. Was she laughing at him? He felt like an idiot coming here on a lame excuse. He finished the shirkuma quickly, told Zubeda auntie that it tasted nice, then took her permission and left. At the door, when he turned to say goodbye, Ruksana wasn't even looking at him. Akbar's extended family, like most Mormons, mistook rituals for religious faith. 
the Quran, the Prophet, and the oneness of God were accepted as given truths. The five pillars of Islam, however, were not firmly grounded in their house, though the women were more particular in their observances. At namaz time, when the muezzin called out, they unrolled their prayer rugs at home and prostrated before Allah. During the month of Ramzan, they fasted from dawn to dusk and then went to the mosque for the evening prayers. The men too went, whether they were fasting or not, and at iftar time, when the fast was broken, they all ravenously consumed crispy mutton samosas with tea, then came home and ate dinner. During Muharram, the women attended majlises, gatherings where elegies were recited to commemorate the martyrs of Karbala. Hajj was still out of bounds. Nobody had gone to Makkah yet, not even Dadaji. For moments, their religion was more a community affair, a social glue. The Mulana never allowed them to suspect that there might be a spiritual aspect to the faith. He had tightly leashed the community to ritual and routine. The less they learned about the faith, the easier it was for him to keep them quarreled. He forbade them to read the Quran and draw their own meanings from it. All meaning had to come from him. Although Dadaji was not a believer, he insisted that the children learn to read the holy book and pray namaz and understand the basics of their faith. When they were older, they could do as they wished, find their own God. When Akbar was 10, he and his cousins were sent every Sunday morning to a mullah's lair two streets behind their house. He was Sheikh Idris Damal, the local priest handpicked by Molana to manage and control the community. The mullah's two daughters, Amina and Fatima, in the early 20s and both dull and bored would teach two groups of children side by side in the same room. They encouraged everyone to recite loudly and the children took the instruction with unabashed gusto. The sessions ended up being free for all shouting matches on the verge of breaking the sound barrier. After weeks of tuition, Khatun noticed that Akbar could not even recite Surah Al-Fatiha, the first verse of the Quran. What he had learned instead was how to make parts by joining his two palms. She pulled the kids out and hired a personal tutor, Sagir Ali, to come and teach at home under her supervision. Sagir Ali, a middle-aged soft-spoken mullah, was told to keep the children's noses with the grindstone, especially Akbar and Moises. For the first few weeks, Akbar was on good behavior, testing the waters. Then whenever his mother was out of earshot, he began to ask questions. Why was the Quran in Arabic, a language they did not know? Because it originated in Arabia. Why can't we read it in Urdu or Hindi? Because translations are no good. Does Allah only know Arabic? Mm. The teacher lost his school and told him not to ask stupid questions. Just learn to read, he was ordered. Akbar applied himself and began to decipher the letters, started connecting them into words and then full sentences, but they made no sense to him. He asked for their meaning. Sagir Ali patiently explained what little he knew. Akbar remained dissatisfied. He said he would not study until he understood what the surahs meant. The teacher insisted on the superfluity of meaning, explaining that there was merit in just reciting. Akbar remained unconvinced. Khatun intervened but could do little more than exert her authority. To Akbar's insistence on understanding what he was reading, she had no credible argument. Moise was no better. Fascinated by the Arabic letters, he spent most of the time calligraphing them rather than learning them. Over the course of three summers, Akbar willy-nilly managed to perform the basic prayer and gained a modicum of proficiency in reading the Arabic script. When he reached high school, the demands of secular study and exam kept him busy, and by then he was too old to bother with religious instruction anyway. 
Khatun gave up on him reluctantly but was satisfied that he had at least learned the rudiments of the faith. Thank you. You've been listening to episode 25 of Desi Books. News and views about Desi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Bart. Episode 26 will be up in a couple of weeks. Follow on Twitter at Desi Books or Instagram at Desi.Books and tag the accounts if you have requests or suggestions. Email at hellodesibooks at gmail.com. The transcript will be up in a few days on the website. And stay healthy, keep reading, and write well.